You guys have made it through the whole day. Thanks again for coming to the second annual, we hope, of many Texas Tribune festivals. Um, this afternoon's panel ends a couple of things. It ends our diagonal track that went through all six tracks on healthcare and trade and everything that each had panels of legislators. So this is the final panel of legislators for the day. And of course the final one in the health and human services track. Uh, when we're done here, we get to play some. Um, there's a festival over Festival Garden, they're calling it, over at Schultz's. I understand there will be frosty beverages. I apologize <laughs> for the weather. We do what we can. Um, I'll keep these introductions brief. You know these guys, and you can look at more in the program if you want to. Representative Gar Garnet Coleman of Houston is the senior member, not the oldest maybe, but the most experienced member of the House Public Health Committee and has also served on appropriations. Senator Royce West of Dallas is on both finance and health and human services committees in the Senate. Um, Bob Duell of Greenville is one of our two doctors on the panel. He serves on health and human services and finance in the Senate. And Dr. John Zerwas of Simonton. Is it Simonton or Simonton? I never knew. Simonton. Simonton, okay. Um, he's our second doctor. He's on public health and chairs the subcommittee on health and human services and appropriations. Um, I guess the main thing I want to hit and sort of the thing that a lot of this revolves around is federal health care. And I'm curious, we'll just go down the line and talk about it, um, how does federal health care impact Texas? How does that play here? And, and specifically, how does it play under President Romney or President Obama? You want to jump into that? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, it is the law of the land. And uh, candidate Romney has already said that he's not going to repeal pieces of it. And uh, I think he'll be saying more and more about more pieces that he's not going to repeal before we get to the uh, end of the election. It's very hard to take things away from people, uh, and particularly in the exchange where there'll be uh, subsidized uh, health care and health coverage in the exchange, which continues forward along with the, uh, the personal mandate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's done. Uh, I think under Obama, there'll be flexibility in an in a, in a extreme amount of flexibility on the Medicaid expansion or, or because uh, the court said that states have the option of extending Medicaid to adults. And so that means states have uh, power in that and the federal government has power. So they'll have to come to agreement on how that is to be done. Uh, and that will probably include some form of waiver uh, under the, the Medicaid portions of the Affordable Care Act. Um, you want to crack at it? Well, first, first of all, I think that it's great that every citizen of the United States of America now has the ability to have health have care. Um, and when we begin to look at it in the state of Texas and what it means, I'm not certain at this point in time because of the stance, uh, stances that the governor has taken in terms of the exchange, in terms of expansion of Medicaid. Um, and uh, when you really think about the $24 billion that uh, this brings with it, and uh, Texas is not taking, uh, how should I say, uh, taking that into consideration in terms of what we're going to be doing in terms of serving the population. Uh, you look at the number of uninsured in the state, uh, and you compare it with other states, and you see that we are, needless to say, almost number one, with 23 to 24% uninsured. I think and the then, latest numbers are we are number one. We are, we are number, number one, one now, okay. Uh, we're number one, okay. And, and the reality is that's a sad, that's a sad <laughs> statement, 
in terms of um, the state of Texas and its citizenry. Uh, and I'm not sure where candidate Romney is because he said one thing and then his campaign came back and said something altogether different. So I'm not real certain where he is. When, where I am certain, I'm certain where uh, President Obama is. And the reality is, is that we now have health care in the United States. Now, is it perfect? No. Is there a lot of work that needs to be done? Yes. But I think that Texas needs to be involved in uh, this uh, health care experience that the rest of the uh, country is experiencing right now. How does that play out in the, when the legislature comes in? I mean, you know, there's some disagreement over how Texas will play here and whether Texas will play here. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the legislature uh, could uh, come up and say, yes, we want to have a, uh, we want to expand Medicaid, and the governor's already said no. I think when we had Senate Bill 7, uh, many of us supported it coming out of the Senate, and then uh, you, you know what happened to it. Uh, the House made some changes to it. I think Representative Zerwas had it in the House. It didn't pass during the regular session, and it passed during the special session uh, with um, provisions in it, basically saying that we could, uh, the state of Texas could disregard any federal laws. I think that's what it had in there. And so with that type of provision in there, it, it sets up a, um, another fight, if you will, mm -hmm. in the courts, maybe, uh, given that Texas was one of the many states, obviously, that uh, was a uh, party to the uh, lawsuit that ultimately made its way through the Supreme Court as relates to the constitutionality of this particular act. And so from that vantage point, the question is, is will we be at loggerheads with the executive, will the legislature, depending upon how it's composed, be at loggerheads with the executive branch, the governor, in terms of expansion of, um, of the um, Medicaid plans? As an example, um, I think by 2014, somebody, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that uh, the, the Medicaid plan is supposed to have certain essential benefits consistent with federal law. And if it doesn't, then it's not in compliance. But, and, and I don't know specifically how that, um, given what the Supreme Court said about the expansion of Medicaid rights, how that interacts with that. It, it applies to the expansion population, but not the existing population in terms of the benchmark plans. So if that, if that ends up being the case, mm -hmm. then where does that put us in terms of where the uh, Commissioner of Insurance has said that she's not certain of exactly how that will impact uh, the insurance policies that we have in the state of Texas. What, what, what I do know is this, <coughs> that most Texans, regardless of whether they're Democrats, Republicans, otherwise, are for uh, making certain that we are able to have uh, kids on health care plans until they're age 26. I know that um, candidate Cruz has said he's against that. Um, and I know that most Texans are also for making certain that individuals with pre-existing conditions are able to get insurance uh, coverage. Senator Duell, red president, blue president. Well, uh, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to, to go back a little bit. And you, you talked about federal health care and, mm -hmm. and keep in mind that a half of all health care in the United States now is, is federal government health care. I don't say that negatively because I believe in Medicare. I believe in Medicaid, but you've got 50 million, roughly, not quite that, uh, citizens on Medicare. You've got almost 70 million, I think 68-something million, on Medicaid and, and throw in CHIP. And some of those are dual eligibles, meaning they're on Medicaid and, and Medicare. So we already have half. Um, what I keep trying to uh, get people to understand is that having health insurance and having access to health care are two different things. There are many people with health insurance who do not have access. For example, only 31% of physicians 
in Texas take new Medicaid patients. As a family physician who still practices in Greenville, Texas, I have Medicaid patients. I cannot find other specialists to take care of them, and these are lower-income folks, and I have to send them to Dallas. That's 50 miles away. That, that's a big deal. So being on a government health program does not necessarily mean you're going to get health care. Um, being on insurance does not mean on the converse. Uh, you know, med again, Medicaid, uh, no copay, no deductible, and you can't find a doctor. A lot of people with insurance, private insurance, lower income folks, so maintenance people at school districts, um, the copays and deductibles force them into a situation where they're acting like the uninsured, meaning they're waiting until catastrophic, catastrophic events. So putting that in perspective, um, what we have to face is, is uh, they've discussed is are we going to expand <coughs> Medicaid to able-bodied people? Uh, or are we going to do the exchanges? Um, the legislature makes that decision about expansion. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think we need to expand Medicaid to able-bodied people. The well, other part is We'll get back to that, but all the people that are eligible are not able-bodied. Yeah. So we, we'll talk well, about Well, and, and those are the folks we need to, to look for. And Medicaid, you know, roughly 30% of the, the Medicaid recipients are blind, Asian, disabled, nursing home, if you will. 70% um, are women and children, but the amounts that those people cost is in reverse. In other words, the blind, aged, disabled are 30% roughly. They're 65% of our cost. The women and children are 65, 70% of our recipients, but they're 30% of our cost because they're relatively healthy people. In the middle, you've got about 8% that are, are disabled adults. The federal government's going to pay all. Medicaid's matching roughly $4 to $6. We put up 4 they put up 6 Federal government's broke, $16 trillion in debt with Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security obligations, depending on who you read, $60 to $120 trillion. And then they're saying, well, the fourth year, they're going to pay 90%. That could change. Usually what the federal government does is cut provider rates, which then decreases access. So asking... Well, that's not provided for. Now, what? come on now. Provider rates are set by the state of Texas and Medicaid. Well, you know Medicare. that as well as I do, Dr. But it still decreases The reality <laughs> on, is we, last session we cut it by, what, 2%? Yeah. We're cutting. But, but the federal government, if they decrease their match, we're forced in that situation. That's but what they, they don't do with decrease Medicaid. their match. Huh? They could. Well, I could they're, fly. They're, they're, <laughs> but I'm not well, fine. But, but Garnet, they've done it. No, they and have they, not. They've done it before. They do, well, it, it fluctuates. Well, you're talking, you're confusing per Medicare income. and Medicaid. You know. No, yeah. well, well, confusing, let's just talk about Medicaid. You're they're telling us that they're going to go three years and pay for it all, then go to 90%. They can't afford to do that. Asking them to do that is sort of like asking your bankrupt parents to loan you money. They can't sustain it, and neither can we. So we... We are not doing a good job taking care of the current Medicaid recipients. Well, we just agree on and, that. Well, and we'll get to come back around to let, that because let me, let me look back it to needs the, to be discussed in a way that yeah. is, yeah, if, what, it would have, could have, may, but the reality is that's the law. And we're going to pay for it. We're right. going to pay for it one way or the well, other. Another, and the here, other thing is that the, right, the, you sitting on the finance committee mm -hmm. and all you other folks sitting on appropriations committee, you set the rate. And that's yeah. the reality of it. If 30% of the people, the doctors, are not taking it, it's because you set the rate so low. Yeah. Well, I understand that. Well, I then if disagree. you understand that, but, more people would take it if you set the rate to an appropriate place. Well, he started it. I'm not going to sit up here and do answers based on nice good stuff if you don't sit up and say that. We set the rate 
based upon the budget money that we have. That's my exact point. No, you it's, set the rate based on being elected to the legislature, and you have a decision to make based on what the priorities of our state are. And if you don't think that caring for people who are poor is a priority, then you'll set the rate low for reimbursement. But you're talking to someone that advocated we raise the rates. I, but again, you just talked about the fact that, that somebody was cutting the rates. I advocated the for raising I know you did, but let's, let's make sure that we're talking about that. Because there's a fact that is a fact because of the actions of the legislature. That's the reality. The, the, the rates are. And, and as a matter of yeah. fact, the, the conversation this time, when we had a pretty deep discussion about that as to what happens to the safety net if we, if we ding the provider uh, network out there, nursing home doctors and hospitals. Nursing homes were going to go out of business last time with what we were talking about doing. Mm -hmm. Kept them level, kept the physicians level, who were still benefiting somewhat from the free settlement that we had. So doctors and dentists still had, gone, had seen some increase. We saw a little bit of uptake in the people that were willing to take Medicaid patients, and we didn't want to destroy that safety net. So we said, okay, look, everybody's got to try to make it work. Let's just keep people level, and we hope that that doesn't cause the safety net to, to deteriorate. And I think for the most part, it did that, uh, although we, we still continue to see some lack of uptake among physicians out there. The hospitals really took it in the pants, frankly. You know, mm -hmm. They're the ones that really um, you know, took uh, quite a bit of hits in terms of their compensation right. for Medicaid services and stuff. Some of it, it needed to happen, like statewide standard dollar amount and that kind of stuff. Uh, some of it was just a matter of fact, is how are we going to get this beast to work? when really the only place we have to, to rein in the cost of the Medicaid program is on the, on the back of the provider network because we don't have the ability to, to really change a whole lot of other things. Now, that's just a fact of life. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying I, I, I like it necessarily. I do think it's one of the things that we've got to try to figure out in terms of how do we gonna, are we going to sustain this program and sustain the safety net of the providers out there. Uh, we're going to have to find other options that we have to kind of rein in the cost of health care in the Medicaid program. Let me circle back to something for just a second. If, if we have the arguments that we have had and that are sort of pre-existing, our own pre-existing conditions, we're going to talk about Medicaid rates and all of those things, whether or not we have federal health care, because those are the things we've been talking about exactly. all along. But I'm curious, with federal health care under one administration, assuming that this thing goes forward, or assuming it doesn't go forward, what falls to Texas? What does Texas have to do differently starting in January with it, without it? How, well, how do you think I, I, think, I think, well, and just to continue the conversation of, of who ends up being the president, I, I think, you know, uh, children with pre-existing conditions, I don't think we should eliminate them. I'm, I personally am willing to see my premiums go up a little bit to accommodate that. And I think if you've ever seen you know, the consequences of children without, without health insurance and they come bouncing back into the emergency rooms with asthma and every other kind of complication from a chronic disease, you see that there is a clear benefit for the children to have health insurance, stay plugged into a primary care doctor, keep them out of the expensive setting of an emergency room. I think that, that most people are going to be okay with that. I think you're going to be okay with keeping your kids on until 26, you know, well, see, but the frankly. Problem, and, 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 I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you, you have a, a U.S. Senate candidate saying that if he had to vote for those things separately, he'd vote to make certain that we repeal those provisions. Yeah, and, and I, I, I would disagree with that, I'd say. You know, just, again, looking at it and seeing, okay, what are, what are, are the real negative consequences financially, you know, in terms right. of financial integrity of what we're doing? What are the real consequences of children with pre-existing condition 
and children staying on the plan until 26. But it's you pretty know, you know Romney has already said that he would not move to change the 26 insurance to 26 years old in pre-existing condition, but that's because the public's for it. Well, but but his camp then came back and kind of muddled the water in well, terms I, of where, I, where his position is. I just going. said, but the reality of it is that his running mate is for block granting all of it. And his running mate's plan is the plan that Romney would push forward even if you kept the pre-existing condition stuff for children and kept the, uh, the on the insurance till 26. Those pieces don't have anything to do with where the bulk of the people would be covered, and that's under the Medicaid program. So I say all this to say that as we move forward, uh, that doesn't change the experience of a lot of people. Because what if they don't have health insurance? How are their children going to stay on until 26? Sure. Yeah. How do you, uh, how's the legislature going to reconcile? Assume, assume we have the federal health care program, whoever the president is, in January. Governor says we're not going to take this part of it. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. Federal government says, oh, please, want you. Let's, here's $100 billion over 10 years. How do you reconcile that? How does this, how, what do you think really happens here? I, I don't want to argue the politics of it so much as I want to argue to the extent you can the practicality of it. Where, where do you think we're going to land? How do you think this conversation goes forward? Well, I think the, if you're talking about the issue of, okay, would all of a sudden the federal government throw you a block grant with your Medicaid program? Is that where you're going right. with that, Ross? Right. And say, and it's kind of like the dog that finally catches the car. What do you do with it now that you got it, you know? And so there has to be some kind of effort define how are you going to manage this this benefit plan if you will right. you know within the realm of the of the, the amount of money that you have i mean you've got to become actuarial in this this effort you've got to become cognizant of what are the real needs of texans out there what are the benefits and what is the eligibility overall now obviously and i think clearly there's going to be certain criteria that you have to meet but but i would say you've got to really focus on what are the expected outcomes that you want to see achieved by virtue of now having uh, this block grant or this this thing in your control that every, you know people have said certainly in my party said that we can manage this thing better without all the federal uh, ties to it and so forth that would allow us to extend the value of the cash that we have out there and you know, the, you know Chairman Coleman and I had a lot of conversation from the front and the back Mike on this and uh, and, and you know I think we both both feel passionate with where we stand on that uh, and, and appropriately so that ha that helps us get to the right position and stuff mm -hmm. but I think that ultimately you got to define first of all how, how are you going to manage this once you get it and then I would argue uh, and this won't be a surprise to, to Garnet is you, you need an exchange in there to manage right. this thing because an exchange does nothing more than operationalize um, the right. grant money that you have that's all it does it's, there's nothing negative about it we buy stock on exchange we buy cattle in exchanges we can buy health insurance and exchanges. And it's just a way for us, the consumer, to go someplace, understand what we're buying, and buy it. And so I think if, that, if you look at the three realms, get the money, get the overall management of it through, through some kind of board out there that would run it, define it, and then, and then operate it, and then operationalize it with an exchange, and then you have the ability to do let it. Me, let me say this. I think that what we need to do, this is going to be a perfect storm as um, when, when President Obama is reelected. Uh, it's going to be a perfect storm. And, and this, this, this is the drinking game when he okay. says that. This, this is what it's, <laughs> I mean, we have the issues in Texas concerning the, concerning the women health program. Right. Okay. We have these issues concerning the exchange and, exp and expansion of uh, uh, Medicaid. So it's going to be a perfect storm in terms of how the state and the federal uh, government kind of negotiate the, the differences of opinion. 
And it would be refreshing in the state of Texas, uh, given uh, people on both sides of the aisle are not talking to one another, that we try to figure out whether there are those of us that here can talk on behalf of the state of Texas and say with the governor's office to try to and, and know something about this issue to come, try to come up with some, some something that makes sense for the entire well, state of Texas. I think we can design an exchange system. Um, you know, we made an attempt at it in last session and got discouraged by a variety of folks, but I think we can design an exchange system that's more patient-centered um, and it's just as uh, John said, and we can give people sort of a clearinghouse. But again, we have to address the issues of cost, of quality, perverse incentives that a lot of third-party payment does um, because just having insurance is not going to give people health care. And there are a lot of, we've, Texas has, you hear all the negative stuff, we've led the nation practically in federally qualified health clinics uh, and funding those and supporting those, which have provided a lot of care to low-income, working poor, some uninsured people. And uh, we can continue that. It doesn't get much, much press, uh, if you will, but that's something that we've done. And, um, you know, if President Obama is reelected, then we have to deal with that bill because even if the Senate goes Republican, then he would veto. They're not going to get a veto proof legislature uh, to deal with that. The Supreme Court did say this bill's constitutional, it didn't say it was good policy. And uh, well, there are some things, but there are some things there that we can deal with. And, and, and thanks for bringing us back to reality, because the reality is the law is constitutional. Yeah. Uh, the, Texas doesn't have to do an exchange, and the governor has already said he doesn't want to, and that means the federal government will do the exchange. Right. That's going to happen anyway, because regardless who, of who's elected, the bill is in place, and, the, and we have to meet the benchmarks. But the other thing is it doesn't look likely that the Senate's going to change, so we'll have regardless of who's elected president, we'll have split a Republican House, probably, maybe not, uh, and a Democratic Senate, and, and, and uh, say it's, what's his name, Romney. Uh, <laughs> but that counts if you're drinking along with us. <laughs> but, but, but say it is Romney, and, 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 and he can't pass anything or repeal anything with a Democratic right. Senate. So we'll more than likely be going down the road of implementing the Affordable Care Act. And uh, so in that, I think we can work together to get to good places, but I think we also have to deal with the reality of the world. As much as somebody wished this was all a dream, it isn't. Uh, it is actual reality. And I think we can come together yeah. to make some good progress, even on the Medicaid expansion. Because again, if you have a waiver that the CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, does, that waiver can, can bring together some of the objectives of both uh, parties. And one is covering people, but the other is, yeah, well, maybe skin in the game is appropriate. Uh, and we can find some ways to do that that aren't harmful. The governor wants a block grant. Is the federal government going to do that? Is, it, is, is there a big swap out here where, you know, if you'll take some of ours, I'll take some of yours? You want to crack well, I, I, I certainly can't say as to whether uh, they will do it. I, obviously, I'm somebody who is in favor of doing that. I think that it's good for the state. The state can, uh, you know, manage. I think its population of indigent care better than they can from from um, in Washington D.C. And I think it's frankly, it's it's an easy way for them to say, okay, take this off our plate. You know, you guys run it, handle it. There's, you know, there's been examples of that working. Um, it does put upon us the burden to make sure we get do it and we do it right. <laughs> 
you know, again, it's the dog that catches the car. You know, we talk a lot about it, but what happens when it really, really comes down here and stuff? So uh, I, I can't say whether they, they will, although in just my observation, there's been more conversation up there about this possibility, uh, not necessarily all Republican, but, but Democrat also, you know, just in terms of looking at, you know, we've got to get our spending in, in, in order here and actually, you know, kind of washing your hands of, of, the, of that and saying, okay, here's the money, make it work, because there's no more coming back, you know. Right. So, yeah. Well, and working with 1115, which is not exactly a block grant, but and working with the federal government, I mean, that's just now settling in. Um, you know, we were kind of headed the direction, I hate to say this, California, but actually was working there, I thought, but uh, the feds want to change, make us change a little bit from what they're doing for, for various reasons, but uh, I think we need to prove we can make that work, and then perhaps we could get a block. I don't think it's going to come in one big swoop. I think perhaps bits, bits and pieces to show that we could do it. But the, the problem we have with Texas is Texas is the difference between my area of the world and Greenville and South Texas is probably more different than Maine. Or, you know, it's, right. we're so different in this state, and there's different needs and different health care systems. Uh, geographic. Senator Yesti was here a while ago, 55,000 square miles in his district with counties of 1,000 people. Well, health care delivery there is obviously much different than right. Austin or, or the Metroplex. Sure. Can I just say this about block grants? Block grants, if, it's not, if it doesn't index to inflation or have an increase based on population increase, what that does is lower the amount of dollars that are available, that's available per person. Uh, in the Medicaid program in Texas. There's just no doubt about that. And so essentially it's a cut if it fixes the amount of dollars we get over time. So 20 years later, we'll have the same dollars that we have today. And that won't be enough for a growing state and a growing population of people. And that's been the age-old argument. Also, with every block grant plan, that means that the entitlement goes away. And we've been hearing a lot about entitlement people lately. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I don't like that rhetoric because I think it's distasteful. Uh, but the reality is that's the desire more than anything else. Ryan and his two or three different plans is to get rid of the quote-unquote entitlements, not just in Medicaid, but also in Medicare. But as I understand it, what the governor's asking for is not exactly that kind of block grant. It's, this is more just give us all the money for this. We'll manage it won't happen. I mean, political reality, we that's can, not going to happen. He say that all day long. What happens it's not going to happen. So, so here's where I'm going. I mean, is there some kind of a swap here where they say, you know, okay, we'll block grant some of this money, maybe in dribs and drabs? Well, I'm the one who proposed that, by the way. Okay. Well, what, what's so, happening? So, so the, the reality of it is we can, we can do some exchanges, but if somebody believes, anyone believes that there's going to be a block grant of that's, the, that's quite frankly, of the 189 billion, it's more than just, it's 189 billion in federal funds. Uh -huh. And that the, the, the federal government's gonna send us a block grant of 189 billion on the, uh, they're just not gonna do it. Yeah. And, and, the, and the reality is, is that we should, we've gotta work with the federal government, but you know, if, if the federal government gives us something, then we're gonna have to get something back too. Yeah. And so the question becomes one's, needless to say, like I said, sure. Earlier, when I'm negotiating a deal. What happened, Ross? The the Budget Reconciliation Act, I think that was the name on 07 when Bush was still president, and we met with Secretary Levitt at the beginning of the 07 session. And what they were going that bill set up was that we could get Medicaid has its rules, as as Garnet pointed out. You can 
get, you can deviate from them rules by a waiver. By a waiver. Or something called a state plan amendment. That bill supposedly made it easier to do. And, and Secretary Levitt said, you know, you need to get all your wishes in for the waivers and state plan amendments because we don't know who's going to be president in, in 08, 09, mm -hmm. and all that. Well, that got a little better, but not real good. But that's what we've tried to do in terms of customizing it to Texas so we could waive the tr regular Medicaid rules and, and inform them to Texas. And the extreme of that would be a block grant, but there still are ways under whoever's president, under Health and Human Services, under Romney, under, under Obama, that process can still go on. And again, I think we have the 1115 waiver, and people are working on that as we speak. I don't know how it's going in, in Houston. Well, area. first of all, it, we have oversight the County Affairs Committee, yeah. and so I've been working on it a whole yeah, lot. As I, a matter of fact, I, you made sure that the, this administration uh, supported that waiver so that we could mm. put things in there that actually had yeah. some benefit. And I hear it's going, Houston's ahead of the curve. You could tell me if that's true or not. But well, we are ahead of the curve, but, 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 but everybody, this is something good for everybody. Yes. And, and, yeah. and this is where there has been agreement with Governor Perry, yeah. with the administ Obama administration, within our own uh, counties, as well as within our own uh, carrying out of legislation on the state level. So, I, you know, I know that that is a very good thing. That's why I know we can do some things. Well, don't you think that if we make that work that any administration federal administration would give us some more leeway? Well, no. I think that really? yes, and this is why. Because under the waiver, there are benchmarks. Yep. And the, the CMS has to agree to everything as we move forward. So this isn't like a usual waiver where yep. they say, okay, you can just go do what you want and come back and talk to us in five years. This actually has benchmarks and accountability on whether or not it meets the objectives of lowering costs, keeping people out of, out of hospitals, meets the objectives of better public health, meets the objectives of uh, what we would call better quality and better health care. So this is not the, the typical waiver like we try to understand that. But if we, do, if we do that and we meet those benchmarks and we make it work, do you not think that whatever administration's in there that they would give us? Well, the answer to your question is these are two different programs. And the answer to your question is in the original Affordable Care Act, I went up and asked for a waiver from the Affordable Care Act expansion of Medicaid, and they said no, that they wouldn't do that. Now that it is a, uh, you know, states have the option, I think that that's part of that. But it won't be a part of this waiver that, that we have now. That would be a part of the discussion on what the state is w willing to ask for and how flexible the federal government wants to be on that particular story. Yeah, the, 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 uh, let me just say this real quick, Senator. I think that one of the things that, that does happen as a consequence of these, these uh, so-called disrip uh, pool of money for improvement of population health it does really focus us, which I, I think is incredibly important. Whether you get a block grant or not, mm -hmm. there has to be an effort to rein in the cost of health care. And, right. and a block grant by itself is not going to do that. If we just continue to spend money and pay it the way we're going to do it, we're going to continue to have those problems. That's the exciting thing about the DISRIP, right. the uncompensated pool in the DISRIP. The DISRIP are those projects that are, in, are intended to improve the population's health. So if you start looking at how you compensate the health care system based on those population dynamics, what you're talking about is, is compensation based on quality and cost effectiveness. Right.
and that's what these disparate pools prove out there. So the other one, is, as you mentioned, Chairman, was the was skin in the game. Uh, yeah. Clearly something that, that shows that it, it does impact people's healthcare decisions and behaviors. And put those two things together in whatever kind of healthcare system we live in, and you're going to see the, the, the cost of healthcare come down, I think. And these are some of the things that I've laid out uh, because I think that we have to meet each other halfway. Mm -hmm. During the 90s, an 1115 waiver meant something totally different. That meant that you, a state asking for one was going to expand Medicaid. You could only, that's what it was for. Right. So in that, they allowed the federal government, the CMS, what it was called HICFA then, allowed uh, states to change some of their requirements under that expansion that allowed more people to come in and use sliding scales. Well, if this is an expansion, maybe we should discuss it that way, that we use some of the, the, the logic and knowledge from the, it was the Clinton administration mm -hmm. and come in and look at some of those flex, that flexibility as long as it doesn't harm uh, children and the disabled and, that, and the elderly because it, that's a group that, you know, flexibility and co-pays and co-insurance doesn't work very well. With. Right. Let's talk about one of the other healthcare um, issues in the session. I won't call it a fight yet, and we'll see how it develops. Women's health program. Um, this is, you know, we've got a women's health program. It's become conflated in some ways with the fight between the governor and some of the Republicans and Planned Parenthood. Can you walk me through this? How does this settle out? You know, what, I, I guess the issue that I'm that I'm most curious about is: Does the state land its women's health program in a place that allows most of the women in the state? eligible for those services to get those services? Well, you know, based on the last thing that I heard is that uh, when Seuss was uh, the commissioner, he said that uh, the governor and also Seuss said that we were going to take care of it. But the reality is, is that the way that it was going to be taken care of is through an expansion, through the expansion program, which the governor said we're not going to expand it. So how are you going to take care of the issue right. without expanding right. Medicaid? So what are you going to do? Well, you know, what I'm going to do is to try to work with my colleagues to see that we make certain that family planning is, in fact, dealt with. You know, um, the, the question is, is that we're about to cut off, we cut off funding for the, the least of us that can afford it. And so the, the question becomes one, will we be able to get the governor to look at the issue of making certain that the dollars are available so we can pull down the federal funding? But federal funding is about 90%. Well, but as I understand it, this isn't purely a funding issue. This is partly an issue that even if you put the money back into the program that you did, if you exclude Planned Parenthood, for example, well, I'm not going to. You don't have the services core, available. There's two core issues, Ron. Well, well, let, let, let me just be real clear sure. where I am, because you asked me where I am. Yeah. I think that we, sh we need to have that back in. I mean, people are saying this is all about abortion. Well, it's not all about abortion. You look at the multitude of services that are provided, and we know that those services are needed. Go back and look at El Paso when um, dollars were taken out of programs out there and the increase in uh, different types of uh, uh, illnesses associated with the, the population out there. Uh, we need to make certain that it's back in. And for one, I'm going to be fighting to put it back in. Well, well the two core issues, there's two really. One is should government provide family planning? And, you know, ultimately, is the, what's the answer to that? Well, probably not. But if we don't. Well, how do you define yeah. when you, when you, when you say that, though? I, I advocate that. the government does. But ultimately, should government be provided? The answer is really no, but the answer is yes, because what happens if you don't? And that is more unwanted pregnancy, That's exactly right. more people on welfare, and more abortions. There is an argument 
disagreement within the pro-life movement of which I am part mm -hmm. of whether or not we should have family planning pr provided by governor. Of course, a lot of pro-life people are Roman Catholic and it's against their religion. So that's going on and brewing. I've been a big advocate for family planning programs uh, because I, you know, as a health uh, service doctor in the late 80s and Medicaid didn't provide prenatal care then as you guys probably remember right. and every night I was on call I had a young woman come in in labor had no prenatal care well your cost of neonatal intensive care you know babies with long-term chronic illnesses etc and it was just smart to do that and now Medicaid's over half our deliveries in Texas but nonetheless but some people don't think we should be doing family planning I say well if we don't this is what's going to happen the other issue is should an organization that provides abortions or their affiliates be allowed to provide that family planning. Now, people disagree with this, but I think there's an inherent conflict of interest allowing abortion providers or their affiliates to provide those family planning services. Another part of what I've tried to do in the 10 years is that for the same money that you can spend on just family planning, you can provide comprehensive medical care to these women. And we have tried to shift that paradigm to let providers be available that will provide comprehensive care. A lot of young African-American, Hispanic women have blood pressure, diabetes issues. If they go to a strictly family planning clinic, they have to be sent somewhere else. Well, guess what? They don't get there. So if you've got the same place. So that's all mm -hmm. part of what we've done here. And I understand the controversy about taking it away from the abortion providers, but there is a network out there of non-proportion providers and affiliates that can provide that care. So, so then, let, me, let, me, let me ask that question. If you map providers, yeah. regardless of money, if you just do a map of Texas and say, here's where the providers are, here's where the need for these providers is, yeah. and you remove Planned Parenthood and its affiliates from that map, does that map still cover the state, or are there big pockets it covers where, it you, where you don't but have I those think services? It, it covers it differently, but in the same proportion. Yeah, there will be areas where there'll be some problems, but then there's going to be other areas where there's not, where there's a problem now. Well, aren't there some fairly big but, areas where you have fairly major problems? I mean, Well, the, the, the lists that I've seen and the lists that I've had said no, that, that there will be enough people. But, you know, anytime you change a system, there's winners and losers. I hate to use it in those terms. But I think we can develop this comprehensive care system, uh, exclude the abortion providers, and then, of course, we have this payment issue of the women's health, health program. But... Uh, that's the long-term goal. Where do you think this lands? Well, we've been, we've been having this fight for 18 months. Where does this, where right, does this go? Right. Um, I think that it, it ultimately, one, I think, I think the money's there. I think the money can be found. I don't think that's really going to be the hurdle. I think the hurdle is going to get the comfort level that, we, that women, in fact, can get these services that, that are very important. And the senator has articula articulated it very well. And mm -hmm. that is, is that the consequence of them not having access to the family planning services results in unwanted uh, pregnancies that go to term. That's the way I would prefer to see it, obviously, as a pro-life uh, person. Or it's uh, unwanted pregnancies that, uh, that somehow do end up in some kind of an abortion or situation like that. But I think that ultimately uh, the work that we have ahead of us is to, okay, let's define what the, the access is. If we've got the money, if the money's not the issue out there, mm -hmm. is the provider network adequate in order to meet the need? That's what I think we've got to get firmly but, but grounded we, on. We go, but we go back to it. Where's the money? Where are we going to get the money from? If it's, if it's not a priority, I mean, if we talked about exp expansion of Medicaid in order to, to fund this, the governor said no to that. And so, so we're talking about GR, and, and then where do we get it from? Right. I, you know, well, I, I, well, that's I just, incumbent on us. I just want to go, you know, 
I'm the, the son of an OBGYN and the son-in-law of both deceased of an OBGYN. This doesn't just affect Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is a great organization that provides preventative care for women. Mm -hmm. But this affects individual physicians. It also, with the gag rule, rule, it affects individual physicians being able to allow, be able to give good counseling to their patients. Right. But this is about community providers and people that live in the neighborhoods that I represent, and they have been totally cut off and aren't even a part of this conversation. It was black physicians who went and made sure that black women, and particularly poor black women, had an opportunity to see, uh, to have good health care. And that still is the case. So I think that we're missing a part of the argument. In the earlier uh, discussion on family planning, and the discussion, I heard people saying them and they and, you know, and act as if they knew a whole lot about black people. And I was like, well, they don't. Uh, and, 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 and so I, this confuses me because what Republicans have said time and time again is that they want people to have the choice of provider for the health care that they need. And that was hammered into the managed care expansion. That was hammered into everything, and now people are advocating to cut out that same choice of a provider. But it's not just Planned Parenthood. It is a bunch of other providers out there that are doing uh, the same type of services in their private office, whether it be an abortion service or just giving well women exams. Okay. So anyway. Uh, there's a mic in the middle. Um, take some audience questions if you guys have some. Apparently you have some. How much time we got here? Yes, sir. Um, hello, my name is Tyler Murray. I'm a medical student at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And my question is for the entire panel. Uh, Representative Coleman alluded to the fact that the only way we're, able, we're really going to be able to draw down the Medicaid expansion money is if the governor's office and the legislature and whichever administration's in, uh, office can come to a compromise and we can get waivers from certain provisions of the bill. I'm optimistic that the compromise can be found, but if it can't, there's talk of individual counties and county hospital districts in Texas putting up the money directly right. to draw down expansion funds through the Affordable Care Act. Do uh, the panel members think that's a good idea, and what challenges do they see if a compromise can't be worked out on Medicaid expansion at the state level, and that's essentially one of the only options we're left with? Before we start answering, keep your answers brief so we can get through the, as much of that line as we can. I'll be real brief. <laughs> Hop in. I think that that should be explored, uh, and no different than the uh, stimulus or uh, the education money that now comes in to Texas can be done by an individual school, get, received by an individual school district. The practical matter is that the legislature has to give the counties permission to do that as well, but... Keep in mind, with the expansion of Medicaid, 11% of Medicaid patients have private insurance, by the way. We actually mine that data to get money into the state, and it's brought us in a significant amount of money. But there's a lot of low-income people that would switch over to that expansion of Medicaid. They have employer-based insurance now. That would make it more difficult because of less people for those employers to provide health care insurance, and they may end up dropping it for everybody or it will raise the premiums for the people that are left. So there's, there's cause effect here with any change in the system, whether you think it's good or, good or bad. 
and that's why we, I believe that it should be a statewide system as opposed to a, um, a, a system where you just have eight, eight of the urban counties going into it. Yeah. Right. Yes, ma'am. Um, this is a much more minor issue than what you've been discussing, but um, the Commissioner of Insurance, Kitzman, uh, declined, quashed regulations that were proposed that would have helped consumers know if their insurance would cover, would be likely to cover um, other providers at in-network uh, facilities and to have some idea whether there were a lot of out-of-network people that wouldn't be covered before they go into the place. And uh, are the legislators going to be able to lean on her to change that decision or... Well, that's not a minor issue, especially if you need your health care insurance and you're out of town or something. Uh, I don't know about the other gentleman, but I'm in conversation and, uh, with the commissioner about that particular issue and all of the medical groups at TMA and uh, all that are also in that. And we're going to address that issue because yeah, I, I disagree, I disagree with her that. decision there. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, I'm Ken Yonda, and I'm the uh, president of Community Health Choice, which is one of the 19 contractors for the state of Texas for managed care programs that uh, serve Medicaid and, and, and CHIP uh, children. We uh, handle about 230,000 people in the Houston metropolitan area. And at this point, based on the last legislative session and the uh, expansion of Medicaid managed care, we now have between 80 and 90%, I think, of all the Medicaid recipients in the state are actually in a managed care environment. And so I worry a whole lot about access that was talked about earlier. And I just, I will get to my question in a second, but I need to first refute something about access to care. Because what we find in our health care plan, we have contracts with over 6,000 physicians in 20 counties around the Houston area. And we have as good access for people on Medicaid and CHIP as I do as someone who has commercial insurance through Cigna or Aetna. But you're in a metropolitan yeah. area, right? Yeah, plenty, plenty, well, of, it, plenty yeah, of docs. Yes, to, but to, right. I guess, but even in the rural areas, because we do operate in Jasper yeah. and Newton County and Austin County where I grew up, uh, and, and frankly, access to care is a problem for commercial insured people in Austin County where I grew up. There's just not yeah. that many doctors and there's only one small hospital, so it's, it's not to me, it's a, not just a Medicaid problem, it's well, a delivery I, I, system problem. I live it every day, and I'd be interested in hearing from you at another yeah. time about how you're doing it, because yeah. I know I spend a lot of my time trying to find a, a consultant for a lot of my Medicaid yeah. patients, and our group takes Medicaid, and other groups yeah. don't. Well, we, I'll, I'll tell you the short answer of how we do it is that so, we pay doctors in Houston more than the Medicaid fee schedule, and we're allowed to do that. In fact, the state yeah. can't require us to pay the Medicaid fee schedule. Can we cut to your question? Yeah. Well, Children's Hospital, and I just want to interject this. Children's Hospital in Dallas, 20 years ago when I was in practice and when I was in the health service, if I had a kid that needed a consult, I'd call them up. They'd say, send them down. What do you want to know? But no, just send them down. Send the records. We'll take care of them. Now I have to call. I have to talk to a physician. I have to make my case that this kid needs to be seen. It's not because they don't want to see kids. They save lives at Children's. It's a great institution. Just as human beings, they can only see so many people because none of the private pediatricians and the subspecialties, nephrology, kidneys, cardiology, et cetera, see them anymore. I've seen that just within the span of one, you know, 25 years. So uh, I'm very happy to hear what you're telling me, but that's not true over the state. Yeah, and and your, your a, big, a bigger area, actually, and I'll just real quickly, but isn't the, Medi the Medicare program? You know, I mean, 
personal experience. You know, my, both my parents moved to Houston to help take care of them, tried to find, find them a doc. You know, you know, frankly, if I didn't have the inside track, I'm not sure they would have been able to find a physician of their choice out there and stuff. So it's a, it's a real problem when it, when it comes to, uh, in the Medicare program in particular, uh, pediatricians, a lot of pediatricians are used to taking a lot of Medicaid kids. The, special, the specialists, though, with the Medicaid program is, is really problematic. See what you so started? Can, can I, yeah, I'd like to, to get to my question. I'm sorry. I had oh, too I big of a the preface question. there. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my real question is, given that the, the state has, in fact, moved to, to, to manage care, it seems to me that talking about fee schedules for doctors is less important than talking about what's the medical cost trend, looking at both the fee schedule times the utilization of services. And if we're moving into a managed care arena, how do you see the legislature starting to look at okay, we can't adjust it by adjusting the fee schedule in terms of meeting the appropriation anymore. You have to say to the health plans, how can you help us achieve X percent unit cost increase on a per enrollee basis when in fact the per enrollee cost in the Harris metropolitan area for the last five years has been zero in the managed care plans. When you look at all the managed care plans, there has been no cost per enrollee isn't in fact the problem that we have 40% more enrollees in the Houston metropolitan area in the Medicaid program. And that's the real budget issue that we should be talking about rather than the cost issue. Well, let me uh, address that a little bit. First of all, every time we've done it, uh, we've done two different types of rate increases for physicians or hospitals. Some we pass through directly to the provider and some goes into the rate for the managed care organization to actually do those uh, to kick up their uh, reimbursement rate. So in terms of the cost to the managed care organization for seeing those patients, uh, they usually get enough money to do so on that capitated rate. The issue is overall that we have too many uninsured people. As you know, Harris County has over 1.5 million uninsured people that come into the hospital district or wherever else they are. So in order to deal with this, that's the reason why we have to put more people in pools. Managed care is a really good thing if people stay in that, in that network, but it doesn't work if people are not staying with their primary care physician and staying with uh, the referrals on, on uh, excuse me, on uh, uh, specialists. The other piece is, and we, this is another conversation, but I just want to lay it out. We're headed towards a two-tier system again because those who can either reduce their costs or take less money are going to be FQHCs. Uh, they're going to be organizations like, that pay more like Community <coughs> Health Choice, or they're going to be the county hospital districts and their clinics. And then the other health care system is going to be for people with private insurance, uh, and, and we'll go back to where we were mm -hmm. a long time ago. Okay. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Got time for maybe two more questions. Thank you. Um, my question is for Senator Duell, since um, in your talking points you brought up abled-bodied adults. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm an abled-bodied yeah. adult, and I work for minimum wage, and my job does not offer health care coverage. I've looked in the private market, but to get a plan that doesn't have such a high deductible that it's not worth it would be 40% of my salary. Where do you suggest I get health care coverage? Okay. 
There's a bill filed at the federal government by Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma, who is a family physician, and Paul Ryan and others, a lot of members of the Senate and the House. It's called the Patient Choice Act. Mm -hmm. And what it proposes to do is for low-income workers uh, is to give a rebate of taxes so that you can purchase private insurance. Would it be large enough to make it, make it affordable for me? Yes. And but, but it's a rebate, though. Well, it's, giving, it's, it's recognizing the value of low-income workers in our society. It's recognizing that health insurance is expensive. And to keep in mind, I'm someone that doesn't think that necessarily equates to care. Mm -hmm. Because when I was a young self-employed father in the 70s, our health insurance was asset protection, and we paid the first dollar coverage. I would submit that, you know, assuming that you're healthy and you're obviously young, and everything that probably for the annual physical and for just routine things, you can probably afford that, even working minimum wage. The problem you're going to have is if you get a bad gallbladder, you have a car wreck, you break a bone, or something like that. So, and that's part of a more complex and longer discussion is that we need to get out of first dollar coverage for health care. We need to make, make people consumers again. The Amish don't participate in health insurance, they pay half of what. Most people pay for health care. But the answer to your question is how do we do that? We, again, recognize the value of minimum wage workers in our society as human beings, as Texans, as Americans, realize that they can't afford that coverage, and do uh, the patient choice solution, which is instead of putting people on a government health program, if government health care brought costs down, now costs ought to be coming down. Half health care is, is government. It's not coming down. It's going up. It's creating problems. But it is growing slower than private health care coverage, and I don't want to take up well, too let, much let me, of the let me, let me, time. Let me, hold on for one second, though. But in that legislation, just like you said, it's a rebate, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way a rebate works is that at, uh, when you get ready to file your taxes, you get the rebate. It's not like you get the money up front. You get it on the back end, assuming that you can file the taxes and you're able to get it. And so the, the question is, is if someone has one of those catastrophic illnesses, that's a, a, let, let me finish the question. How are they going to be able to get the care that they, afford the care that they need under that particular legislation? No, they, they get that up front. It's not a, a rebate off the taxes she's paying. It is recognizing her income and her contribution to society. And she gets, and I hate to use the word voucher these days, but uh, she would get a set amount to purchase health care insurance and to be a consumer, and she could do it in ways that would suit her in terms of a health savings account or to buy catastrophic care or to buy a front dollar if she thinks that she can do it. Uh, that's, it's the patient choice. It doesn't get any press. It's there. It's been filed. And, and that would be the approach that if uh, Romney wins and we get a Republican Senate, I would suggest that's what's going to happen. I hope that's what happens. Can, can I make a quick comment? Uh, because we're talking about people being insured, but there's no conversation about underinsured. And so if you can't get enough health care to sure. actually go to the doctor, then it's a problem. Well, I mentioned that about the blue-collar workers. Right, so you yeah. have to look at the plan. But on this issue of able-bodied adults, there's a group of people that have cancer who can't work, but they're not disabled. They have mental health problems. They can't work, but they're not deemed disabled. They have uh, other illnesses, and they're deemed, not deemed disabled. Those are the people who really win in the expansion or the extension of Medicaid benefits to people uh, in, this, in this state. 
because we the state of Texas has cut every dollar they could out of mental health and out of other areas. Now you're putting some of it back, but it's still not back to the levels that we spent in 1999 and 2000. So who wins in this are people who have no access but have chronic conditions and they happen to be adults. Uh, so I think that we have to really look at this not from the rhetoric of uh, that most of the folks are able-bodied. These are the people that are in the gap. And, yeah. and, they and, just, I, and I don't have a problem dealing with something to help those folks. Well, I've got to find it. We have, we have run the hour, gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, Could you, you give them a hand? Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much.